Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. If you happen to have been reading any of the many political previews of 2024, which have been published in the last 10 days or so, you will be well aware that this has been dubbed the year of elections. Almost half of the world's population are going to be offered the chance to vote on who should govern them this year, albeit that choice is not exactly a free one in all cases. But in the course of the next few months alone, we're going to be seeing highly consequential elections in the world most populous democracy, India, as well as in Pakistan, South Africa and Mexico. Things get closer to home with European Parliament elections in June alongside our own local elections. Rishi Sunak is planning for a mid-November election in the UK and an Irish general election might also take place around that time. And of course, on November the 5th, the US presidential election takes place. We cannot, of course, cover all of this in a single episode, but we did want to set the scene a little bit. Uh, Political editor Pat Leahy is with me in studio. Hi, Pat. Morning, Hugh. Uh, I'm also delighted to be joined by uh, what I think I can safely say is the Irish Times journalist who has the deepest experience of covering international elections from his various postings in Berlin and Brussels and Washington and London, uh, Dennis Staunton. Hello. Hello, Hugh, and hello, Pat. Uh, Dennis has reported uh, on the past electoral uh, successes of everybody from Angela Merkel to Barack Obama and to Boris Johnson. And as our China correspondent, he is currently in Taipei for uh, a report on what, with all due respect to Bangladesh, is the first really significant election, I think, of 2024. And that is the Taiwanese election, which takes place this uh, this Saturday. Dennis, maybe just set the scene for our listeners who I know are very well informed, but the, the particular constitutional position of Taiwan uh, maybe could do with a little bit of explanation. Yeah, Taiwan is a self-governing island off the coast of the People's Republic of China. And uh, at the end of the Second World War, Taiwan had been, uh, it had been part of the, uh, the Qing uh, Empire in China. And before that, it had, uh, had various other colonizations, including by the Dutch. But it was uh, in one of these unequal treaties at the end of the 19th century, it was given to Japan in 1895. They occupied it until 1945. And then uh, the uh, the nationalist government in China uh, had uh, been having a civil war with the communists under Mao Zedong. And so the leader of the nationalist government of China, which was called the Republic of China, Chiang Kai-shek, he, uh, as he was defeated by Mao Zedong, retreated with about two million people to the island of Formosa, as it was known then, which is uh, the island of Taiwan. And they then established a government called the Republic of China. They claimed to be the legitimate government of the whole of China. And the uh, Mao Zedong's People's Republic of China claimed to be the legitimate government of the whole of, of China, including Taiwan. And so there was, uh, you know, there's been this standoff. Uh, Taiwan was a military dictatorship until the end of the 1980s. It then became a democracy. 
And it's now a very well-functioning liberal democracy. But uh, what happened in the 1970s was that the the Americans, uh, when Richard Nixon came to visit China and met Mao Zedong, uh, part of what happened after that was that they established diplomatic relations. But uh, one of the conditions of that was that uh, the US would stop recognizing Taiwan, the Republic of China. Uh, And so Taiwan was effectively booted out of the United Nations and was replaced by Beijing. And so that's the position. Ireland, the European Union, the United States, practically everybody, all but 15 countries in the world, recognize uh, Beijing as the legitimate government of China and the only government of China. And they don't have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. They have informal relations with them. Taiwan is in the World Trade Organization. It's part of the global economy. It has a military understanding with the United States. States. So the United States, while it recognized this so-called one China principle, it also has what it calls strategic ambiguity because it has certain obligations in law towards Taiwan so that in the event of an attack by mainland China, that the US says that it will uh, come to its aid. It doesn't say exactly how. And so uh, so the situation has been that uh, the government in Taiwan has been alternating between the KMT, which is the successor party to Chiang Kai-shek. And uh, in fact, it is the party of Chiang Kai-shek. And those, uh, although they were fiercely anti-communist, they are the more pro-China party. And then the DPP for the last eight years has been governing uh, Taiwan under Tsai Ing-wen, who was a popular president. And she has become something of a bete noir of the Chinese uh, in Beijing because they say that she is trying to promote Chinese independence or Taiwanese independence, and they fear that she's going to declare independence. Everybody here in Taiwan understands that it's a red line, that you can't actually formally declare independence. And what uh, the DPP, their candidate is uh, William Lai, who's currently the vice president. What they say is, we don't have to declare independence because we're a sovereign country. And so there's no need to make a formal declaration of independence. They accuse the opposition, uh, KMT, and their candidate, who's Hu Yuin, uh, they accuse him of being uh, pro-China and effectively wanting to unify with China and accepting the Chinese proposal of one country, two systems, like in Hong Kong. The KMT say, no, we don't want anything like that, but we do believe that it's time to have dialogue with China. You can't just keep saber-rattling all the time. And then there's a, uh, there's a candidate in the middle called, uh, called Ko Wenzhe, and his party is the TPP. And what he's saying, he's a former mayor of Taipei, and he's saying, let's stop talking about all this constitutional question all the time and all this business of whether you want independence or unification. Neither of them is going to happen. So let's just carry on talking about what people really care about, which is things like housing, it's very expensive, or wages, they're not high enough, or traffic, there's too much of it. And so uh, so he's been uh, coming up in the middle, but uh, there's no polling here uh, after the uh, for the last two weeks, and you're not even allowed to talk about polls, like anybody who talks about them that can be fined. But before they stopped polling, they were suggesting that DP, the DPP candidate, the vice president, William Lai, was a bit ahead uh, with the KMT in second place and the third guy in third place. But what it all hinges on, really, is how many of his voters go one way or another. So it's a sort of a, it's a PR system. So there's a, there's a preference from the, from the third candidate. 
system? No, it's not a PR system. So basically, so the point is that, so uh, what we think is uh, that the situation would be that you might have, say, 40% for the DPP, William Lai, and then you might have, say, uh, 35% for the KMT, and then the third candidate, whatever, he's got 25%. Now, some of the, his people might be inclined to say, look, we want to get rid of the people who are in already. And so the only the only viable alternative is the KMT. So will we go over to him, to them? So it could be that William Lai, the DPP candidate, gets 40%. But if enough of these people in the middle shift over to the KMT, he could get 42% and then he'd win. So it sounds to me from from my admitted position of ignorance that while there's a bit of, you know, accusations flying forwards and back, there's actually quite a lot of nuance there. And would you really see a significant change in, in Taiwanese policy if the Kuomintang were to win, for example? Yes, you would. Uh, what you'd see would be that, uh, first of all, the Chinese would uh, start talking to them and would be more friendly to them. But also, there would actually be a shift in direction. The DPP has been uh, uh, you know, getting closer to the United States all the time. They are much more confrontational when it comes to China. And so there's no question but that the KMT would reorientate uh, policy towards China. And that includes, for example, deepening a trade deal that they have, which is kind of a bit rocky at the moment. And so uh, so economically, uh, the uh, the DPP has been diversifying away from China. And so they would try to, you know, so you'd, you'd see a shift in that direction. The Chinese would probably be much more friendly. So you'd see tensions ratcheting downwards. The trouble is that there's a limit to how much the D, the KMT can do. So if they wanted to get too close to China, say, economically with trade deals, then they could meet resistance at home and they might just find they're not able to do it. And then the Chinese might decide that yeah, we thought you were our friends, you've let us down, and then things might turn a little frostier again. Because the reality of this and the reason why we're talking about it, not just because you're there, is because Taiwan has moved up the agenda of political flashpoints very significantly over the last decade or so. And really is the sort of, in a way, is sort of the physical manifestation of the increased rivalry for geopolitical power between the United States and China. Yes, it has. And part of it is uh, that it's its strategic position. Taiwan is in the middle of what's called the, uh, the first island chain. And this is a Cold War term from the Americans. And it's basically the chain of archipelagos right up from uh, Russia, right down through Japan and uh, all the way down to the the Philippines and Borneo. And this is a a chain of islands beyond which uh, the Americans think the Chinese shouldn't be able to get. And if they have Taiwan, then if the Chinese were to, uh, the mainland Chinese were to take uh, Taiwan, that would mean that they'd be able to pick off other parts of the uh, the first island chain. So strategically, it's important. It's also important for shipping. Half of the world's freight vessels go through the, uh, the straits here uh, every year. And so, uh, so control of these shipping lanes is also very important. And so if you were, for example, you know, and then the other thing that's made it very important is that Taiwan produce, produces most of the advanced semiconductors in the world, about 70% of them. So if, for example, there were to be a war or a blockade and you couldn't get any of these semiconductors from Taiwan, the global economy would seize up. You, you know, if you thought that COVID and the Ukraine war were bad, wait for this to happen. And an analysis from Bloomberg the other day suggested that the cost, uh, the short-term cost would be something like $10 trillion. US dollars, which is a lot. And so it's, uh, so, so there's an awful lot 
you know, riding on, uh, on, on what happens in this part of the world. Dennis, is there any attempt by the Chinese to interfere or to influence the course of the campaign at all? Yes. So, well, they, what they've been doing is, so in advance, they've been saying, uh, you know, uh, they, they, for example, they impose some tariffs on some goods. It's not really all that significant, but basically it was a signal saying, uh, you know, our trade arrangements are going badly. And that's because this current government in Taiwan is so hostile and they're causing trouble, uh, you know, uh, talking about independence. And so, uh, you know, everything is going to be much better if they're out of the way. But what they've done in the last couple of weeks, rather smartly, I think, is to go quiet. And so instead of you know, the more uh, interference that, the, that, that is apparent, the better it is for the DPP. And so yesterday, for example, we all on our phones got a, a, an alert on the phone from the president saying a missile from uh, the People's Republic of China has flown uh, over Taiwan. And it then uh, emerged that actually this wasn't a missile. It was a satellite that uh, China is sending up a satellite. And it actually, there was nothing really aggressive about it. But it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, can, can, can affect emotions in advance of, um, of an election. So for, so for the moment, the Chinese have been trying to play a reasonably hands-off uh, game, partly because the KMT, who they would like to win, can't be seen to be too pro-China. And const- you know, constantly their candidate is being asked if he is China's favourite candidate. And yesterday I was at a press conference with William Lai, the presidential candidate for the ruling DPP. And he was saying, you know, if the other guy wins, then China will be able to designate who becomes the uh, you know the president of Taiwan. And you won't be a president of Taiwan. You'll just be the governor of a province of China. And so, uh, so in other words, if you do anything that China wants, then you're basically allowing China to make the decision. So, so the, you know, this is part of the of the electoral battle. I mean, just mentioning that 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 missile alert uh, yesterday, Dennis. I mean, there has been you know considerable saber rattling at times over over the past few years, and I have heard you know relatively serious sounding commentators, particularly in the United States, and they discuss the issues of China. You know, speaking in serious terms about the possibility of a military conflict at some point. Does is that there in Taiwan? Is that something that's very high up in, in people's consciousness? Yes, people talk about it, and it's uh, yeah, it, it's I, I, in fact just before I, I spoke to you here, I was at a, out at a military academy talking to this guy about how they're preparing and what they need to prepare for, and what they he was saying. Well, the first thing they do is they send over some missiles and take out our radar, and so this is what we got to do with this. We got to get more mobile missile defense systems and all this kind of stuff. And so there's certainly there's you know the, the, you know they've been building up their defenses, but they also realize that China is very big and they've got a very big navy very, you know very big army and this is an island and they need to bring everything in off the island so they can't really defend themselves for very long in reality without the help of the americans and one of the things that you talk to hear from people here is that they looked at ukraine and what they saw was yeah the americans sent in weapons and they sent uh, help with intelligence they sent money but they didn't send their own people in they didn't send any troops in I wonder what they would do with us, and so this has uh, you know started to feed into the uh, you know the, the feeling here, that where people are wondering, 
is this idea of war, is it a reality? And, you know, what a, a pollster guy I was talking to earlier was saying that four years ago, you had just had the protests in Hong Kong. And that was in everybody's mind. And people thought, we better vote for the DPP because we need to be tough against China because otherwise they're going to come in and make us like uh, like Hong Kong, or at least, you know, that's what they want. And we don't want that. Now, what people are thinking is, gosh, there could be a real danger of war. Maybe we need to start ratcheting down the tension here. And so that, you know, so that's what you, one of the, the, the things that surprised me when I came here and the things maybe I should have known, but I didn't. The people who uh, are supporting the president and who are supporting tough, def- you know, tough on defense, more defense spending, pro-US, pro-Israel, these are also the people who are in favor of same-sex marriage. They're in favor of, you know, like you go into their, I was in their headquarters the other day, and it was like the Obama campaign headquarters with all these rainbow flags and sort of, yes, we can, and all these kind of youngish people who are, you know, sort of they're in favor of kind of, you know, better wages for people. They're, they're essentially, they're classically left. And yet... They have all of this. And you talk to them and I say, look, you know, this is an unusual political profile, uh, you know, for, for in most democracies. And they say, well, you know, we don't really have a choice because it's about sovereignty. And if we can't protect our sovereignty, then we can't have any of this gay marriage or any of the other stuff that you think you like. Well, th- th- that's very interesting, given the kind of framing of our of our discussion today, because as we said, there's, you know, elections happening in half the world. But you know, there are other parts of the world, most notably China, the largest country in the world, where there's not going to be any elections of any sort. So in a way, is that what you're describing there is that, I mean, it's a very successful country by many measures, Taiwan, isn't it? It's prosperous, it's advanced, it's it's democratic, it's, it's liberal by international standards. That, you know, I mean, we've been looking at this or discussing this more from a geopolitical point of view, but there is an attachment to freedom, liberty and democracy as well, isn't there? There is, and it's a reality here, and and in fact, and also partly because it's relatively new, because like it's really only since the nineties uh, that they've had a properly functioning liberal democracy, and so in twenty fourteen there was this so called sunflower movement, and what happened was that the last time the KMT were in power, they wanted to have a trade agreement with China, and they weren't uh, you know it, it was it was unpopular, and they tried to force it through Parliament using slightly dodgy means or slightly you know breaching some democratic norms. And so these people went in and they occupied the parliament for a couple of weeks. And this was around the same time as you had the Maidan in Kiev and you had the umbrella protests in Hong Kong, both of which were smashed by force. But in the case of Taiwan, they didn't. They negotiated with them and the government sort of backed down and the, you know there was no uh, violence, there was no confrontation with the police or anything like that. And in a way, uh, it, although it was, you know, it was an act in, you know, in defense of the democratic norms, but it also, the reaction showed evidence of the strength of democracy here. So there's no question. So it's not just a kind of, um, you know, an ideological attachment to uh, the idea of the so-called free world or whatever. It's actually that they are living democracy. They're taking risks for democracy. They're paying a price for democracy. But then they also, you know, living where they live, they have to consider, and again, if you if they look at, uh, at Ukraine, and they think, okay, we admire these people for standing up uh, against the Russians and for defending themselves. But actually, an awful lot of people are dead. And most things are better than you and all your family being dead. And, uh, and that includes 
and sometimes maybe even lack of freedom. So, so it, like it's not, you know, it's not a theoretical thing here. It is really something where you know people, you know, some people will say, yes, I would like to fight, I would fight, and then others are saying, well, actually. Um, you know, let's talk to these people. And, you know, of course, we want to keep maintain our way of life. But actually, you know, let's not risk something terrible in terms of war. That brings us maybe to some of the broader themes that we were going to talk about to today, Pat. I mean, I've, you know, I'll put my cards on the table. Um, I think I'm probably like the two of you. I love elections. I think they're great. I think they're I fantastic. You were about to declare support <laughs> for one of the parties in Taiwan there, Hugh. Um, no, I'll, I'll save that for Friday does, evening. Does, uh, the final, those swing votes. carefully constructed neutrality in the subject. Um, I love elections. Um, I know some people get out about the horse race way in which uh, journalists cover them sometimes. I do love the horse race, but I also love the, what they represent in terms of uh, a society that's, that's that's worth defending. And this framing that we've had this year about this year being the year of elections, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a sort of a subcurrent underneath that, that in some, some of these situations, or maybe many of them, democracy may be under, under threat or being challenged in, in new kind of a ways. And that's, that's a theme that seems to be to run quite, quite across a lot of the, the elections that we're looking at this year. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously all the elections that are taking place are, are different. And they're all particular to the jurisdictions in which they are taking place, of course. I think it's possible to discern some similarity in, 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 in themes or in underlying forces that are at play in places that are relatively similar, you know. So, you know, it's not hard to, to look at similarities in the elections that will take place in, in the United States and in the European Union. Um, later this year, also in the uh, also in the UK, you know, um, I wonder though about extending or about overextending those comparisons to places like Taiwan and India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. You mentioned uh, er- earlier on where local conditions are are you know are very different, democratic cultures in some cases are, uh, are are very different. I mean, I think there has certainly been a waning of the idea that the world is gradually moving towards the extension of liberal democracy. I mean, that idea has been very much undermined, uh, I think, in, uh, in the last decade, and autocracy is on the rise in, uh, in many places. But I just think in terms of analysing those elections, you can overdo the broad themes uh, uh, because I'm not sure they apply similarly in lots I'm, of places. I'm sure that's absolutely true, but then I've got to try and do that. And I said, i put this question to you, Dennis. You know, there are some very significant countries in what is broadly described as the Global South. Um, and you've written to some extent um, over the last few months, just to come back to Ukraine, about the way in which uh, one of the one of the factors over the last while has been the way in which many of those countries have refused to toe the line or have criticised a certain level of hypocrisy towards, you know, the, the Ukrainian issue on the behalf of the developed countries of the West. So now you have elections in quite a few of those countries. South Africa would be very significant in terms of that. India would also be very important. Indonesia as well, an, enor- an enormous country. So can we expect that that sort of framing which, you, which you've been writing about to manifest itself in, these, in, these, in the, those sorts of elections? 
Well, I think South Africa is an interesting example because South Africa is a place where economic conditions are, are very difficult and unemployment is about 30%. And it's and part of the reason is actually the effects, the ripple effects of the Ukraine war. And, uh, and, the, and those effects have been felt throughout a lot of the poorer parts of the world. There's also the effect of COVID-19. And that, again, was an example where many people in poorer countries thought that there was uh, an awful lot of, uh, you know, where they were overlooked by the West, uh, by the Western powers uh, who were busy focusing on their vaccines for themselves. And, uh, you know, they didn't really uh, take all the, as much trouble as they might have to help all these other people. And so there's, so so certainly, so, so in South Africa, for example, the ANC for the first time might uh, lose its majority. It's unlikely to lose power, but it, you know, but it, but it could actually lose its majority for the first time that would be a significant moment in uh, you know uh, post in, you know in post apartheid south africa's history you know in uh, somewhere like india it's a different story you know where modi is uh, has an approval rating of 78% it's like sort of a net plus of 60 or something and uh, so like there's nothing is going to stop him and uh, or his you know his hindu nationalist bjp he's in a very very strong position but also again he's been strong enough to be able to say uh, to the americans and to the western powers you do what you want with ukraine uh, we We'll sort out our own arrangements, and we have, uh, you know, long-standing arrangements with the Russians. So they've been buying a lot of uh, of Russian energy. They've been selling things to the Russians. And so they've been ignoring all of this stuff. And, of course, part of the reason why when the Europeans, for example go around the world and they were in Beijing recently telling everybody how uh, you know important it is to uh, protect all of these uh, norms of the international rules-based order in Ukraine that people elsewhere in the world say well where were you when these norms were being trampled often by yourselves elsewhere and then just a few months later they saw the evidence of it when uh, the, you know the Israeli response in Gaza to the Hamas attacks on the uh, on the 7th of October and there many of the same uh, you know international rules uh, that were being broken by the Russians appeared to be broken by the Israelis and the reaction of the West was much more muted so so I think that's you know that's there and I do think that for example uh, you know when you see uh, you know uh, you know if you look at the BRICS, uh, this uh, what used to be Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, that's now expanded, and there uh, are a number of new members. One of them, Argentina, decided at the last minute with its new president it wasn't going to join. But these now include countries like uh, you know the Saudis and Egypt and Ethiopia, and uh, you know and these are all you know quite substantial countries, and these are all essentially saying to the Western powers. We might be democracies. Some of us are. We might have uh, strategic military relationships with you. Some of us do. But we don't believe that it's your business to go around telling us how we should uh, govern our countries. And the Chinese are in there saying, yes, we're not trying to export our ideology. You don't all have to become uh, socialists with Chinese characteristics uh, like we are. We're not like the old Soviet Union in that respect. You do whatever you like. Uh, let's all just get along and let's not interfere with, uh, you know, with the internal affairs. And that means you butt out when it comes to Hong Kong or Xinjiang or Tibet or indeed Taiwan. But even within that, that group of countries, the enlarged now BRICS countries, I mean, 
what's the view from Beijing, for example, on the <clears throat> on the rise of India and the increased, you know, power both economic and in other ways of India, and indeed scale. You know, I refer to it as the world's most populous democracy. It's probably within a, the next while going to become the world's most populous country, and that that has some impact surely on China's. Uh, Absolutely. And it's a very difficult relationship. I and mean, they have a border dispute, which, uh, you know, is so hot that the uh, the guards on e- the soldiers on each side are not armed. Uh, because if they were, the danger is that they'd shoot each other. And so, uh, so, so it's a very tense relationship. They recently, uh, the Indians expelled all of the Chinese journalists from India, and the Chinese expelled all the Indian journalists from China. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a very difficult relationship. And also, they are, in a way, rivals for leadership of this global south and uh, you know and so so in that sense it is a difficult relationship and you know and likewise the, you know the uh, the indians are allied with the americans essentially against the chinese strategically so so yes yeah, so this is so this you know these arrangements are loose so in a way what they have in common is uh, that they're saying to the uh, the western powers it's not your global order anymore and you ought to change the rules of it because the rules, your rules-based international order, the rules were set after the Second World War when you were in your pomp. And so you've got more voting rights at the IMF, for example, than you ought to have. And the the five permanent members of the, United, of the Security Council of the United Nations, you know, Russia, China, the United States, France and Britain. What are France and Britain doing there? You know, that's, uh, you know, and why isn't India there? Why isn't South Africa? Why is there no African country? You know, all of these questions. So that that's, so that in a way is what unites them. And, the, you know, and, uh, and, you know, as opposed to even systems of government, because as you say, some of these are going to have elections. Some of them don't really have elections. And it's a multipolar world with various sort of competing and overlapping and conflicting interests where alliances can shift, you know, on, from, from, from one issue to another. Very different from the essentially uni, unipolar world we had after the fall of the Berlin Wall or the Cold War uh, world, which, which existed before that. And kind of at the centre of that from our perspective, Pat, although not obviously from some of the countries which, which Dennis is talking about there is Europe. Um, the European parliamentary elections are always sort of slightly, you know, disregarded, certainly in in, in Ireland, I think, fairly or unfairly, as being second-order elections, being more important as a signifier than, than being really meaningful. feels a little bit less like that this year when they happen in June. Well, they have been traditionally second-order elections because first-order elections are the ones in which you choose your own government or you elect the parliament that then, uh, that then chooses a government. And European elections, I suppose, in the past have been regarded as not quite quite a free vote for people, but certainly the sort of a vote that people didn't discern it as having as direct an impact on their own lives as uh, as a general uh, election. And they were be. probably right, weren't they? I mean, because even though the European Union plays a very important part in how our, how our lives uh, pan out, um, the European Parliament has, the a, le- has a lesser, lesser role in yeah, that. Uh, yeah, of, of the three big institutions, I suppose it's the it's it's the weakest of them. It's very, I mean, aside from the administrative and constitutional arrangements, it's very distant in Brussels, I suppose, and 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 Strasbourg, I suppose, reinforces that 
sense that uh, this is in some way removed from the ordinary uh, lives of people. And that one of the effects of that, I suppose, has been to uh, has been to give us results in European Parliament uh, elections that are not reflective of um, of of the results of general elections. So you know you have this block of Eurocritical MPs in the Irish contingent in the European Parliament, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly, Ming Flanagan, who constitute a large chunk of our MEP representation and are quite far, I think, from the political mainstream uh, here in Ireland, certainly as represented by um, as, as represented by the results of general elections. Do you think and, they're likely to keep their seats in June? Um, my guess would be, and um, like uh, like like the Taiwanese, I say this without the benefit of any recent polling. But um, uh, I, my guess would be that Mink Flanagan will keep his seat, and that Claire Daly will probably keep her seat. Um, Mick Wallace, I'm, I'm, I, I would be less, uh, I would be less sure uh, about. But it is, it is certainly a quirk of Irish politics that. Uh, that a country which polls tell us is amongst the most pro-EU and in which a huge proportion of people have a positive view of the European Union elects so many MEPs that are highly critical uh, of the European uh, Union. Um, I, I, I suspect that will con- continue to uh, to a large degree. I suspect that the threat from... the the threat to those three MEPs that I mentioned will not come so much from the establishment pro-European parties as rather from uh, from Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin will be looking a, to regain, poor, regain losses which had a poor sustained at the 2019 last election. election and is likely to do much better. Dennis, can I ask you, you were, as I said, stationed in, in, in Brussels for, so, for some time. The, the European Parliament, and maybe more broadly European structures, has essentially been a divvy up between the two big centre-right and centre-left parties going back as far as nearly, I think, as I can, as I can remember, maybe with a bit of assistance from one or two, you know, the Greens at one stage, the the, the Liberals at, uh, at another. Um, the, the key thing that seems likely to happen or possible to happen this year is that they won't have the sufficient numbers to maintain that control. That would be the big change if it were to happen, wouldn't it? Yeah, I suppose it would be a change. And then I think maybe what you have to do is to look over to the right of those parties and look at uh, what we would have traditionally called the far right and the different shades of that. So on the one hand, you've got the, uh, you know, the ultra hard right of people like uh, Gert Wilders in, uh, in Holland and, uh, and some of these, you know, very, very hard uh, right elements. And then you've got, uh, rightish, like hardish right elements like Maloney in uh, Italy, like the Polish Law and Justice Party. And so these are, uh, you know, so they're not entirely instinct with uh, democratic, liberal, democratic norms as we would, uh, you know, as the rest of us would, would like it. And, you know, and everybody has been a bit suspicious of them. But actually some of these that on that sort of softer hard right could actually form alliances, I would imagine, with the EPP and uh, the the traditional centre right, and so that's where you might start to see a, a, you know a kind of a realignment where you uh, you start to identify different elements of that far right. 
group. And indeed, Pat, I mean, we're already starting to see that at national level with, with governmental arrangements in Sweden and in other countries, and it remains to be seen what happens in the uh, in the Netherlands. So yeah, that, sure. that, that would essentially mean a shift to the right in European politics. It will yeah. mean a shift to the right, particularly on the hot-button issue of immigration, which is, and we've talked about this before here in a, in a national context, but which is the most important political issue in loads of European countries, and you see that as reflected in the election result in uh, in the Netherlands. So I think what you will see is the, particularly the Christian Democrats moving to the right to accommodate not so much the, the those far-right parties, but to accommodate the public, the, the, to, to accommodate the public views on issues like immigration. As, we, as, we've, seen with, as we've seen with parties like the Gaullists in France already have done For that. For sure, yeah. yeah. You look at hmm. some of the, the things that... Um, uh, that Michel Barnier has been saying as he tries to manoeuvre to be uh, that party's presidential nominee, which is some of the things that he has been saying about immigration, which could have come from Marine Le Pen, uh, I, uh, I would have thought. And so I think what that will reflect itself is, I mean, there is the sort of nightmare scenario for the European establishment that there is such a surge in far-right support and support for parties outside that you know, European consensus that the the governing what we've you know known heretofore as the governing centre in European par- in in the European Parliament doesn't have a majority, and I think that is possibly uh, unlikely. But it it it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. In which case, you could foresee all sorts of difficulties in simply managing the European Union, and you. Th- Combine that with the Hungarian presidency in the second half of the year and the could get departure messy. of of Charles Michel, the early departure of Charles Michel, and it could get very messy. Yeah, mm. um, we're going to take a break. Before we do that, I just want to point out to our listeners, if they aren't aware of it already, that Dennis, of course, is reporting for the Irish Times from from China and Taiwan. We have Keith Duggan in Washington D.C. We have Mark Paul in London. We have Naomi O'Leary in Brussels, and we have Derek Scally in Berlin, and we have a number of other correspondents, including Dan McLaughlin's excellent work from Ukraine and and several others, too many to mention really here. Few, few of whom have the sort of expenses that Dennis uh, habitually racks up. I, I asked you not to mention that, Pat, but, I, <laughs> but, 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 but actually it, it's good that you raise that because unlike any other Irish media organisation, including the National Public Broadcaster, I would say we actually have a team of foreign correspondents on the ground around the world and it's something that we think is very important in terms of what we do. And in order to continue to be able to do it, we do need money. Um, and actually, I've seen Dennis's expenses. They're very reasonable. Uh, but we do need money to keep it uh, to keep it going. And in order to do that in the modern era, we need you to subscribe to irishtimes.com. Just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. And you're very welcome back. Um, Dennis, your last posting was in London. Uh, you saw the the triumph of Boris Johnson in in at the end of 2019. Uh, it was generally received wisdom that that he had had such a sweeping victory that it would take at least two terms for Labour to have any chance of 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 competing again. Um, how things have changed? Yeah, indeed. And uh, actually, I remember the uh, the party conference the year uh, it must have been the year after yeah, 2020, where uh, you know it, they were saying exactly that that uh, you know he's there for ten years, he's master of all he surveys, and yet 
Of course, you know, they said the it same about Theresa May. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, exactly. That's right. They did. Indeed. Uh, just before the 2017 election, she uh, she had those local elections and she did so well. And everybody you know, would say to you, oh, well, you know, that uh, what you think is very boring and a lack of any kind of social skills or uh, charisma, that's actually a down-to-earthness that the British people really like. Well, they kind of got over it, obviously. And uh, in the same way, you know, it, it was clear that Boris Johnson, whatever else, wasn't very good at governing or running a government and you know uh, and there it went and when I left London I left the country in the capable hands of Liz Truss but they didn't appreciate her either (laughs) so um and now we've got Rishi Sunak. And so, uh, but it's interesting when you look at that, because like, one of the reasons that Boris Johnson did well was, you know, this, um, you know, the, the, the two sort of strongest, uh, you know, lines in politics, you know, uh, time for a change or better the devil, you know, and um, and time for a change. Somehow, although he was uh, continuing, uh, you know, uh, a conservative government that had been in power since 2010, uh, he somehow managed to give the impression that uh, he was representing Presenting a change, and uh, that's something that obviously I think uh, you know Pat's closer to it than I am now. But I think it's probably going to be pretty difficult for Rishi Sunak to pull off. And so then it's a question of whether he can scare people enough about the prospect of Keir Starmer. Yeah, Rishi Sunak did actually try to pull this one off very unconvincingly a few months ago, didn't he? Where he, he kind of tried to present himself as the, the party, change candidate at his party conference. The whole theme of his speech was that he was the change candidate, but he he did. He didn't kind of do it with any real conviction. I you need to have suspect, real chutzpah to pull that one off. In fairness, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, whereas now I think, you know, I, I, I think that the result of the next British general election was set in stone with the calamity of Liz Truss's leadership. I think it was always likely to be a Labour victory before that. I think that became completely irreversible after that, no matter what Rishi Sunak does. And I think that from the Conservatives' point of view, Rishi Sunak's job is to minimise the defeat, the, the, the scale of the defeat. And, um, and, and, and I think whenever that, whenever that election comes, he will do so by warning about Labour, running a kind of a, ne- a very negative campaign uh, about uh, about Labour, I think. So, so damage limitation, uh, Dennis, but what I wonder about that is, and given what we've just said about the foolishness of predicting how long, a, how long any British government can last, uh, can last these days, um, presumably what the Tories are trying to avoid is what happened to them in 1997, which is that they got so completely obliterated by, uh, by Blair and then spent so much time essentially eating themselves in the years that followed, that they did keep themselves out of power for nearly a decade, nearly a decade and a half. They do look set to uh, do the second part of that, to kind of, you know, eat themselves once once they do lose this election, don't they? Which might be the best thing that would happen to Keir Starmer. Yeah, that certainly looks like it's, it's like it happened. But the trouble I think that, he, that Sunak has, apart from the fact that he's quite clearly not very good at politics, and that he's got a party that's you know, kind of gone mad and has been mad for a number of years. I think that the, you know, the other problem that he has really is that uh, he's got, uh, you know, normally what you'd expect would be that you try to get votes from the centre. But he has to worry now about his right flank and the Reform Party, which hasn't really done anything electorally. Uh, you know, it, nonetheless, it's polling, uh, you know, 7 8%. And if Nigel Farage decides to come back, he might give them a boost and maybe they won't get any seats. 
But they could, with the first-past-the-post system, it could be if they get 7 or 8% or 10% in some constituencies, that could be enough to make sure that the Conservatives lose and either the Lib Dems or the Labour Party candidate gets in. And so that's where, you know, so, so in, in a way he's kind of forced into a kind of a core vote strategy of banging on about immigration, about trans rights, about all kinds of things, uh, you know, that are not central to most people's, uh, you know, lives instead of actually trying to move to the centre, or at least every time he moves to the centre, he then has to lurch back to the right at the same time. And it's a it's an undignified manoeuvre. So, you know, fortune has favoured Keir Starmer's Labour Party in a, in a number of ways, and I suppose he's made his own luck in certain other ways in terms of the ways he's he's, he's repositioned his, his party. One way in which he seems to me to have been very lucky, Pat, is that... Um, Labour appeared to have lost Scotland at the last election, but it looks like it has a prospect of at least getting a chunk of Scotland back. And without Scotland, historically, it's very hard for a Labour Party to win a majority in the House of Commons. Uh, yeah, and you're right that he has been lucky in Scotland because uh, you've had this sort of self-immolation uh, to an extent of uh, the Scottish nationalists. Um, but, you know, I mean, and a bit like you know, the combustion of the uh, of the Tory party as well. Starmer has benefited from that. But he's put himself in a position to benefit by that to an extent by just not being Jeremy Corbyn, but also by taking on the left within his own party. I mean, he's expelled Corbyn and, uh, and he has cracked down uh, against the left. And whatever you think about the dis juncture between what he said when he was campaigning for election and when he was a part of Keir Starmer or, uh, of, of, of Jeremy Corbyn's front bench and what he now says I think there's no doubt that that is the politically advantageous positioning to take and the fact that he is in that position now owes a lot I think to the internal battles he was prepared to fight in uh, in uh, in the Labour Party because that is how that is how we know history tells us that is where electorally successful Labour leaders come from. They take on the left within their own party. I do wonder, Dennis, last thought in the UK, what what will happen? We had Peter Foster from the Financial Times on a couple of months ago who has written a, a book about uh, post-Brexit British politics and obviously you've observed an awful lot of the, the of the turmoil over there. And Peter's critique, as, as I understand it, is that Starmer hasn't perhaps been bold enough or clear enough or articulate enough for, with the British electorate about what it is he actually plans to do that will be different. And that may actually end up hobbling him uh, when he does come to power. It might, but I think it possibly depends on two factors. One is how big his majority is. And it looks, by the way, that uh, you know they've sanitised their candidates list so much that every single person will be a yes man, a yes woman, and a, a say absolutely nothing person. And so, they're, so they're, they're not. I think they're not going to have too much trouble with party discipline. So first of all, it'll be how big their majority is. And secondly, to what extent the Conservatives really do tear themselves apart afterwards. And so I think that, uh, you know, uh, he's, and it also may be that that you know, he's fortunate enough to uh, to come in when the economy is coming out of some of its troubles. Now, obviously, there are certain structural things that are difficult. And I think he's probably wise not to go on about Europe too much. I think that you know, things may, it's probably likely that in a kind of a fairly sort of uh, you know, piecemeal way, they will start to move closer 
to Europe, and uh, you know, uh, but uh, you know, without making any big declarations or big moves about joining the single market or the customs union. But I think that you probably might find that just as time goes on, that the conditions are set so that public opinion might be able to stomach a closer relationship with Europe than we imagine is possible right now. So Rishi Sunak has has made noises about November the 14th as the date for the UK general election. The American presidential election, which we'll come to in a moment, is on November the 5th. I have kind of sleepless nights over the idea that the Irish general election might be on November the 8th or November the 9th, Pat, and that uh, we'll need to get uh, extra caffeine in, extra caffeine pills in for the for the political team or indeed the news desk in the Irish Times for the entirety of November. What are the chances of a mid-November Irish election? If I had to, the, the chances are not negligible. Um, my guess might be a little bit earlier than that, maybe a late October uh, election. I can see, I mean, look, I, uh, I think a lot of these decisions haven't been made yet, but Leo Varadkar and the leaders of the coalition will want to put themselves in a position whereby they can viably make those decisions to go early in the wake of the local and European elections and depending on the overall political and economic context uh, at that stage. Um, I, I think a pre-summer election, general election here, is, is, is very unlikely. I think the two possibilities, to my mind, are, the, uh, are in maybe late October, early November. You can have an early budget. We know that they had one two years ago. So you could have a budget in the first half of uh, September. At what point do you need to announce the early budget, given that that will be a, a big flag? I guess probably when you're doing the summer economic statement, which is start of July, first half first half of July, first week or so, first 10 days of, uh, of July. Um, and uh, and then you could do, you do a quick finance bill and uh, and then you call the election at the end of September and it takes place at the uh, the end of uh, October. Obviously, that timescale could run on by uh, a couple of weeks. I don't think that Leo Varadkar um, and the coalition leaders, and ultimately it is constitutionally as Varadkar's call on it, I don't think he would be influenced by the fact that there are elections in other jurisdictions. Um, I, I we don't think that would be a factor. He's not. not worried about our sleepless nights. I'm not sure he is, to be honest. Mm. I'm not sure he is. Um, Whether he should be. But sorry, the other option, then, the second option is what? Is early 2025? Yeah, yeah, first quarter of 2025. Yeah, in, I guess, March, uh, possibly running. Uh, possibly. And you think the first of those options is the more likely? I do. Still? I do. Right, well, that brings us to the, I suppose, the what I think of as the biggest election of the year, uh, Dennis, the most consequential for the most people in, in many ways, and that's the American presidential election. Partly because, um, unlike some of the other ones that we're talking about, the choice is starker, I think, than any of, than, than pretty much all the other choices. And it's a mugs game to predict what's going to happen on November the 5th. So what's going to happen on November the 5th? <laughs> um, I don't know. Because I, I think that also we don't even know who the candidates are going to be. Uh, like we think we do. Like you know, certainly like we're, we're speaking before, like a few days ahead of the Iowa caucuses. And the received wisdom is obviously that Donald Trump is going to, you know, uh, uh, prance his way through the primary season and uh, within a few weeks have wrapped up the uh, the Republican nomination and nothing can stop him. And maybe that's true. It may be that one of the other candidates can uh, hang in there. If, for example, you were to have a situation where uh, Trump 
in, you know, uh, instead of getting 50% in the Iowa caucuses or 60%, ended up getting more like 42, 43% and say Nikki Haley, uh, you know, did rather well. And so she, uh, you know, she out, outperformed expectations he, and he underperformed. And she then went into New Hampshire and somehow managed to win that, which is not entirely out of, uh, you know, uh, that somehow she gets a bit of momentum. And so either, even if she doesn't knock him off his perch, that she's able to stay in there until the Republican convention in the summer and then some of his legal troubles or something else might happen and you have to get rid of him and then she's there or something. So that's one possibility. Joe Biden has suggested that if it wasn't Trump that it wouldn't be him. Uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, there could be all kinds of other reasons why, uh, you know, why he's not there. So I suppose, you know, among the imponderables, uh, and among the things that we think we know and that we don't is who the candidates are going to be. And I just think that it's uh, it's so difficult to predict between the two because they both have strengths uh, as well as enormous weaknesses. And so the strength of Trump is that he still, and one of the revelations of this uh, of his return to the airwaves is that he still can do what he was always able to do. He's very good at, uh, you know, at appealing to the people he appeals to. He's a very good performer. He's funny. He, uh, you know, he speaks clearly. He speaks a language that people enjoy listening to, something which, uh, you know, Biden doesn't. And yet, on the other hand, there uh, are the strengths of the Democratic coalition, which you saw in the midterm elections. The issue of abortion is obviously very helpful. The idea that, uh, some, you know, that, that people, the Democrats, are not going to come out and vote when, uh, you know, Trump is going to be obviously the center of any Democratic campaign. Don't let this guy back in. And you know what he's like. He's going to be worse next time around. So that also is a pretty powerful thing. So uh, so I think, as you say, it's, it's a mug's game. And I certainly don't know uh, how it's going to turn out. But, uh, but I think, uh, you know, I think not only is it going to be an interesting election, but I think the process along the way, I think, uh, is going to be something that's, uh, that's uh, has more ups and downs. Than well, indeed, and, and including, Pat, with this, you know, ongoing parallel narrative of these criminal trials, which will be which will be taking place as the campaign goes on. If, if, as Dennis says, if if Trump is actually the candidate all the all all the way to November, how much of a shock is it for the international order and for the sort of politicians who you deal with and meet if Donald Trump comes back for a second four years? I don't think it's a shock because it's well, a so shock. Well to, no, 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 I don't. Sorry, I don't mean a surprise. I mean a shock to the system, to their you know sense of of. The world order as it, as they would like it to operate. Yeah, I mean, I think it shifts the world order on its axis a little bit. The fact that the American electorate would have chosen, in the full knowledge of his character and program, would have chosen Donald Trump. I think that would be a kind of a definitive statement of the will of the American public about its place in the world, which is very different to that place in the world that has been occupied by the United States for, um, you know, since since the Second World War. So I think, yes, in the sense that it wouldn't be a surprise, that would be a shock and a highly consequential move. My guess is that is not what would happen. And while we're at the, in the basis of making Muggs predictions, I, I, I suspect that Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump 
in, Just despite in, the polls in, at the, the moment. Election. I know we're yeah, a long yeah, way yeah. out. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're a long way out. The choice isn't before people. Lots of things still have to happen, both legally and on the uh, on the campaign trail. And my guess is that if, if, if Joe Biden stayed upright, he would beat Donald Trump. I'm not so sure about an alternative Republican nominee, most likely Nikki Haley. I think Nikki Haley could beat Joe Biden uh, and perhaps another Republican, uh, even if Haley is the most likely alternative, um, if something happened to Trump during the uh, uh, you know, during the primaries, and equally, there are probably a number of Democrats who could beat Donald Trump. I wonder, really? What do I you think? Who Dennis? is the Democratic candidate? It's, it's very difficult to see, and it, it is really negligence to the point of criminality on the part of the senior people in the Democratic Party that they haven't uh, that they that they that they don't have a viable alternative. I I, I would have thought Gavin Newsom. Uh, is uh, he's a very good political athlete, as it were. He's a, you know he's got uh, a lot. He's also he's somebody who's not afraid of going on Fox News. He's not afraid to take the battle to them, which is uh, you know you know he'll and that's a, a strength. He uh, you know he looks presidential. He's uh, you know he's got a lot. You know he's been the governor of a big state. He's California, obviously, which is not, you know, always an advantage, but it didn't do Ronald Reagan any harm. And, you know, so it's, uh, so I think there probably are, uh, you know, some uh, potential candidates out there, certainly if you look at governors, say, rather than senators. But, uh, you know, but it's, you know, it may be just too late. But wouldn't they have to be introduced to the rest of the American people through a primary process? And that's not going to happen. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, you can, you know, there are obviously there are ways of of doing it otherwise. And so you can say extraordinary times, you know, and the, I mean, the other, uh, the other, one of the reasons why some Democrats would like the idea of Gavin Newsom is that it solves the problem of what to do about Kamala Harris, who's not, uh, you know, hasn't shown herself to be very popular as a vice president. And the thing is that you can't have the vice, the president and the vice presidential candidate from the same uh, state. Because they, you know, they they must be from different states. So if it was Newsom, then she's also California. So she'd unfortunately have to go. But you know, uh, so that's um, you know, so, so there's a kind of a certain neatness about it. But I think we might be getting a bit ahead of ourselves. I, I, I think we well, are getting we're, ahead. We're of getting ourselves a little there. ahead of ourselves, but also it's late in the day to be getting ahead of ourselves. Well, we're... well, actually, yes. And the idea, and obviously, it is floating around some parts of the Democratic Party of replacing Joe Biden, as opposed to Joe Biden perhaps having a health event, which is what other people say, and therefore having having to be replaced, would be a sort of a hair on fire moment. And people point back to 1968 when, when, when Johnson jumped quite late in the day, and that ended up being really a catastrophe for the Democratic Party on, on many levels. And among other things, introduced the to my mind, slightly bonkers primary system with which you're 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 very familiar with, Dennis. All of which we're going to cover, by the way, over the next uh, coming weeks and months. But we do have to leave it there. We could go on for another hour about the world's elections, but we won't do that because Dennis has to go back to work, as does Pat. Uh, I might even have to too, but I will leave it there for the moment. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon. We'll be back with you very soon indeed, before the end of the week. Until then, thank you very much indeed for listening.